Section 9 of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Macmillan. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1C, Section 9, Chapter 27, Part 1. Henry VIII. The death of Henry VII had been attended with as open and visible a joy among the people as decency would permit and the accession and coronation of his son henry the eighth spread universally a declared and unfeigned satisfaction instead of a monarch jealous severe and avaricious who in proportion as he advanced in years was sinking still deeper in those unpopular vices a young prince of eighteen had succeeded to the throne who even in the eyes of men of sense gave promising hopes of his future conduct much more in those of the people always enchanted with novelty youth and royal dignity the beauty and vigor of his person, accompanied with dexterity in every manly exercise, was further adorned with a blooming and ruddy countenance, with a lively air, with the appearance of spirit and activity in all his demeanor. His father, in order to remove him from the knowledge of public business, had hitherto occupied him entirely in the pursuits of literature, and the proficiency which he made gave no bad prognostic of his parts and capacity. Even the vices of vehemence, ardor, and impatience, to which he was subject, and which afterwards degenerated into tyranny, were considered only as faults incident to unguarded youth which would be corrected when time had brought him to greater moderation and maturity and as the contending titles of york and lancaster were now at last fully united in his person men justly expected from a prince obnoxious to no party that impartiality of administration which had long been unknown in england these favourable prepossessions of the public were encouraged by the measures which henry embraced in the commencement of his reign his grandmother the countess of richmond and derby was still alive and as she was a woman much celebrated for prudence and virtue, he wisely showed great deference to her opinion in the establishment of his new council. The members were Warham, Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor, the Earl of Shrewsbury, Steward, Lord Herbert, Chamberlain, Sir Thomas Lovell, Master of the Wards and Constable of the Tower, Sir Edward Poynings, Controller, Sir Henry Marney, afterwards Lord Marney, Sir Thomas Darcy, afterwards Lord Darcy, Thomas Ruthell, doctor of laws and sir henry wyatt these men had long been accustomed to business under the late king and were the least unpopular of all the ministers employed by that monarch but the chief competitors for favour and authority under the new king were the earl of surrey treasurer and fox bishop of winchester secretary and privy seal this prelate who enjoyed great credit during all the former reign had acquired such habits of caution and frugality as he could not easily lay aside and he still opposed, by his remonstrances, those schemes of dissipation and expense which the youth and passions of Henry rendered agreeable to him. But Surrey was a more dexterous courtier, and though few had borne a greater share in the frugal politics of the late king, he knew how to conform himself to the humor of his new master, and no one was so forward in promoting that liberality, pleasure, and magnificence which began to prevail under the young monarch. By this policy he ingratiated himself with Henry, he made advantage, as well as the other courtiers, of the lavish disposition of his master, and he engaged him in such a course of play and idleness as rendered him negligent of affairs, and willing to entrust the government of the state entirely into the hands of his ministers. The great treasures amassed by the late king were gradually dissipated in the giddy expenses of Henry. One party of pleasure succeeded to another. Tilts, tournaments, and carousels were exhibited with all the magnificence of the age, and as the present tranquillity of the public permitted the court to indulge itself in every amusement, serious business was but little attended to. 
or if the king intermitted the course of his festivity he chiefly employed himself in an application to music and literature which were his favorite pursuits and which were well adapted to his genius he made such proficiency in the former art as even to compose some pieces of church music which were sung in his chapel he was initiated in the elegant learning of the ancients and though he was so unfortunate as to be seduced into a study of the barren controversies of the schools which were then fashionable and had chosen thomas Aquinas for his favorite author he still discovered a capacity fitted for more useful and entertaining knowledge the frank and careless humor of the king as it led him to dissipate the treasures amassed by his father rendered him negligent in protecting the instruments whom that prince had employed in his extortions a proclamation being issued to encourage complaints the rage of the people was let loose on all informers who had so long exercised an unbounded tyranny over the nation they were thrown into prison condemned to the pillory and most of them lost their lives by the violence of the populace empson and dudley who were most exposed to public hatred were immediately summoned before the council in order to answer for their conduct which had rendered them so obnoxious empson made a shrewd apology for himself as well as for his associate he told the council that so far from his being justly exposed to censure for his past conduct his enemies themselves grounded their clamor on actions which seemed rather to merit reward and approbation that a strict execution of law was the crime of which he and dudley were accused though that law had been established by general consent and though they had acted in obedience to the king to whom the administration of justice was entrusted by the constitution that it belonged not to them who were instruments in the hands of supreme power to determine what laws were recent or obsolete expedient or hurtful since they were all alike valid so long as they remained unrepealed by the legislature that it was natural for a licentious populace to murmur against the restraints of authority but all wise states had ever made their glory consist in the just distribution of rewards and punishments and had annexed the former to the observance and enforcement of the laws the latter to their violation and infraction and that a sudden overthrow of all government might be expected where the judges were committed to the mercy of the criminals the rulers to that of the subjects notwithstanding this defence empson and dudley were sent to the tower and soon after brought to their trial the strict execution of laws however obsolete could never be imputed to them as a crime in a court of judicature and it is likely that even where they had exercised arbitrary power the king as they had acted by the secret commands of his father was not willing that their conduct should undergo too severe a scrutiny in order therefore to gratify the people with the punishment of these obnoxious ministers crimes very improbable or indeed absolutely impossible were charged upon them that they had entered into a conspiracy against the sovereign and had intended on the death of the late king to have seized by force the administration of government the jury were so far moved by popular prejudices joined to court influence as to give a verdict against them which was afterwards confirmed by a bill of attainder in parliament and at the earnest desire of the people was executed by warrant from the king thus in those arbitrary times justice was equally violated whether the king sought power and riches or courted popularity henry while he punished the instruments of past tyranny had yet such a deference to the former engagements as to deliberate immediately after his accession concerning the celebration of his marriage with the infanta catherine to whom he had been affianced during his father's lifetime her former marriage with his brother and the inequality of their years were the chief objections urged against his espousing her but on the other hand the advantages of her known virtue modesty and sweetness of disposition were insisted on the affection which she bore to the king the large dowry to which she was entitled as princess of wales 
the interest of cementing a close alliance with Spain, the necessity of finding some confederate to counterbalance the power of France, the expediency of fulfilling the engagements of the late king. When these considerations were weighed, they determined the council, though contrary to the opinion of the primate, to give Henry their advice for celebrating the marriage. The Countess of Richmond, who had concurred in the same sentiments with the council, died soon after the marriage of her grandson. The popularity of Henry's government, his undisputed title, his extensive authority, his large treasures, the tranquillity of his subjects, were circumstances which rendered his domestic administration easy and prosperous. The situation of foreign affairs was no less happy and desirable. Italy continued still, as during the late reign, to be the centre of all the wars and negotiations of the European princes, and Henry's alliance was courted by all parties, at the same time that he was not engaged by any immediate interest or necessity to take part with any. Louis the Twelfth of France, after his conquest of Milan, was the only great prince that possessed any territory in Italy, and could he have remained in tranquillity, he was enabled by his situation to prescribe laws to all the Italian princes and republics, and to hold the balance among them. But the desire of making a conquest of Naples, to which he had the same title or pretensions with his predecessor, still engaged him in new enterprises, and as he foresaw opposition from Ferdinand, who was then connected both by treaties and affinity with Frederick of Naples, he endeavoured by the offers of interest, to which the ears of that monarch were ever open, to engage him in an opposite confederacy. He settled with him a plan for the partition of the kingdom of Naples, and the expulsion of Frederick a plan which the politicians of that age regarded as the most egregious imprudence in the French monarch, and the greatest perfidy in the Spanish. Frederick, supported only by subjects who were either discontented with his government or indifferent about his fortunes, was unable to resist so powerful a confederacy, and was deprived of his dominions. But he had the satisfaction to see Naples immediately prove the source of contention among his enemies. Ferdinand gave secret orders to his general, Gonsalvo, whom the Spaniards honor with the appellation of the Great Captain, to attack the armies of France and make himself master of all the dominions of Naples. Gonsalvo prevailed in every enterprise, defeated the French in two pitched battles, and ensured to his prince the entire possession of that kingdom. Louis, unable to procure redress by force of arms, was obliged to enter into a fruitless negotiation with Ferdinand for the recovery of his share of the partition, and all Italy, during some time, was held in suspense between these two powerful monarchs. There has scarcely been any period when the balance of power was better secured in Europe, and seemed more able to maintain itself without any anxious concern or attention of the princes. Several great monarchies were established, and no one so far surpassed the rest as to give any foundation or even pretense for jealousy. England was united in domestic peace, and by its situation happily secured from the invasion of foreigners. The coalition of the several kingdoms of Spain had formed one powerful monarchy, which Ferdinand administered with arts, fraudulent indeed and deceitful, but full of vigor and ability. Louis Twelfth, a gallant and generous prince, had, by espousing Anne of Brittany, widow to his predecessor, preserved the union with that principality on which the safety of his kingdom so much depended. Maximilian, the emperor, besides the hereditary dominions of the Austrian family, maintained authority in the empire, and notwithstanding the levity of his character, was able to unite the German princes in any great plan of interest, at least of defense. Charles, Prince of Castile, grandson to Maximilian and Ferdinand, had already succeeded to the rich dominions of the House of Burgundy, and, being as yet in early youth, 
the government was entrusted to Margaret of Savoy, his aunt, a princess endowed with signal prudence and virtue. The internal force of these several powerful states, by balancing each other, might long have maintained general tranquillity, had not the active and enterprising genius of Julius II, an ambitious pontiff, first excited the flames of war and discord among them. By his intrigues, a league had been formed at Cambrai between himself, Maximilian, Louis, and Ferdinand, and the object of this great confederacy was to overwhelm, by their united arms, the commonwealth of Venice. Henry, without any motive from interest or passion, allowed his name to be inserted in the confederacy. This oppressive and iniquitous league was but too successful against the republic. The great force and secure situation of the considerable monarchies prevented any one from aspiring to any conquest of moment, and though this consideration could not maintain general peace or remedy the natural inquietude of men, it rendered the princes of this age more disposed to desert engagements and change their alliances in which they were retained by humor and caprice, rather than by any natural or durable interest. Julius had no sooner humbled the Venetian Republic than he was inspired with a nobler ambition, that of expelling all foreigners from Italy, or, to speak in the style affected by the Italians of that age, the freeing of that country entirely from the dominion of barbarians. He was determined to make the tempest fall first upon Louis, and in order to pave the way for this great enterprise, he at once sought for a ground of quarrel with that monarch, and courted the alliance of other princes. He declared war against the Duke of Ferrara, the confederate of Louis. He solicited the favor of England by sending Henry a sacred rose, perfumed with musk and anointed with chrism. He engaged in his interests Bambridge, Archbishop of York, and Henry's ambassador at Rome, whom he soon after created a cardinal. He drew over Ferdinand to his party, though that monarch at first made no declaration of his intentions. And what he chiefly valued, he formed a treaty with the Swiss cantons, who, enraged by some neglects put upon them by Louis, accompanied with contumelious expressions, had quitted the alliance of France, and waited for an opportunity of revenging themselves on that nation. While the French monarch repelled the attacks of his enemies, he thought it also requisite to make an attempt on the Pope himself and to despoil him as much as possible of that sacred character which chiefly rendered him formidable. He engaged some cardinals, disgusted with the violence of Julius, to desert him, and by their authority he was determined, in conjunction with Maximilian, who still adhered to his alliance, to call a general council which might reform the church and check the exorbitances of the Roman pontiff. A council was summoned at Pisa, which from the beginning bore a very inauspicious aspect and promised little success to had adherents except a few French bishops who unwillingly obeyed the king's commands in attending the council, all the other prelates kept aloof from an assembly which they regarded as the offspring of faction, intrigue, and worldly politics. Even Pisa, the place of their residence, showed them signs of contempt, which engaged them to transfer their session to Milan, a city under the dominion of the French monarch. Notwithstanding this advantage, they did not experience much more respectful treatment from the inhabitants of Milan, and found it necessary to make another remove to Lyons. Louis himself fortified these violent prejudices in favor of papal authority, by the symptoms which he discovered of regard, deference, and submission to Julius, whom he always spared, even when fortune had thrown into his hands the most inviting opportunities of humbling him. And as it was known that his consort, who had great influence over him, was extremely disquieted in mind on account of his dissensions with the Holy Father, all men prognosticated to Julius final success in this unequal contest. 
the enterprising pontiff knew his advantages and availed himself of them with the utmost temerity and insolence so much had he neglected his sacerdotal character that he acted in person at the siege of mirandola visited the trenches saw some of his attendants killed by his side and like a young soldier cheerfully bore all the rigors of winter and a severe season in pursuit of military glory yet was he still able to throw even on his most moderate opponents the charge of impiety and profaneness he summoned a council at the lateran he put pisa under an interdict and all the places which gave shelter to the schismatical council he excommunicated the cardinals and prelates who attended it he even pointed his spiritual thunder against the princes who adhered to it he freed their subjects from all oaths of allegiance and gave their dominions to every one who could take possession of them ferdinand of aragon who had acquired the surname of catholic regarded the cause of the pope and of religion only as a cover to his ambition and selfish politics henry naturally sincere and sanguine in his temper and the more on account of his youth and inexperience was moved with a hearty desire of protecting the pope from the oppression to which he believed him exposed from the ambitious enterprises of lewis hopes had been given him by julius that the title of most christian king which had hitherto been annexed to the crown of france and which was regarded as its most precious ornament should in reward of his services be transferred to that of england impatient also of acquiring that distinction in europe to which his power and opulence entitled him he could not long remain neuter amidst the noise of arms and the natural enmity of the english against france as well as their ancient claims upon that kingdom led henry to join that alliance which the pope spain and venice had formed against the french monarch a herald was sent to paris to exhort lewis not to wage impious war against the sovereign pontiff and when he returned without success another was sent to demand the ancient patrimonial provinces anjou maine guienne and normandy this message was understood to be a declaration of war and a parliament being summoned readily granted supplies for a purpose so much favored by the english nation juan of Iso, an agent of the popes at london had been corrupted by the court of france and had previously revealed to lewis all the measures which henry was concerting against him but this infidelity did the king inconsiderable prejudice in comparison of the treachery which he experienced from the selfish purposes of the ally on whom he chiefly relied for assistance ferdinand his father-in-law had so long persevered in a course of crooked politics that he began even to value himself on his dexterity in fraud and artifice and he made a boast of those shameful successes being told one day that lewis a prince of a very different character had complained of his having once cheated him he lies the drunkard said he i have cheated him above twenty times this prince considered his close connections with henry as only the means which enabled him the better to take advantage of his want of experience he advised him not to invade france by the way of calais where he himself should not have it in his power to assist him he exhorted him rather to send forces to fontarabia whence he could easily make a conquest of guienne a province in which it was imagined the english had still some adherents he promised to assist this conquest by the junction of a spanish army and so forward did he seem to promote the interests of his son-in-law that he even sent vessels to england in order to transport over the forces which henry had levied for that purpose the marquis of dorset commanded this armament which consisted of ten thousand men mostly infantry lord howard son of the earl of surrey lord broke lord ferrars and many others of the young gentry and nobility accompanied him in this service all were on fire to distinguish themselves by military achievements and to make a conquest of importance for their master 
the secret purpose of ferdinand in this unexampled generosity was suspected by nobody the small kingdom of navarre lies on the frontiers between france and spain and as john d'albert the sovereign was connected by friendship and alliance with lewis the opportunity seemed favorable to ferdinand while the english forces were conjoined with his own and while all adherents to the council of pisa lay under the sentence of excommunication to put himself in possession of these dominions no sooner therefore was dorset landed in guipiscoa than the spanish monarch declared his readiness to join him with his forces to make with united arms an invasion of france and to form the siege of bayonne which opened the way into guyenne but he remarked to the english general how dangerous it might prove to leave behind them the kingdom of navarre which being in close alliance with france could easily give admittance to the enemy and cut off all communication between spain and the combined armies to provide against so dangerous an event he required that john should stipulate a neutrality in the present war and when that prince expressed his willingness to enter into any engagement for that purpose he also required that security should be given for the strict observance of it end of section nine chapter twenty seven part one recording by graham mcmillan san diego california